Welcome, everyone. I'm Will Fenton, Director of Research and Public Programs at the Library Company of Philadelphia. We are one of America's oldest cultural institutions, founded by Benjamin Franklin uh, as his library for his Junto in 1731. Today, we are an independent research library uh, with special program areas in political economy uh, and business history. Um, we're actually going to hear from a fellow uh, or a former fellow of that program today but also a program in African-American history, women's history, visual culture, and uh, print and book history. Of course, early Americana is right in our veins as well, obviously, given when we were founded. Um, so with that, allow me to introduce our speaker tonight. Danielle Skihan is Associate Professor of English and Comparative American Studies at Oberlin College. Her work has appeared in the 18th century, Theory and, and Interpretation, The Appendix, The Journal of Early the, excuse me, the Journal of the Early Republic, Commonplace, and Early American Studies. She is a former Pease postdoctoral fellow. We're very proud of that. And her book, which we're going to be hearing about tonight, is The Fabric of Empire, Material and Literary Cultures of the Global Atlantic, 1650 to 1850. This book was recently published by Johns Hopkins University Press in the series entitled Studies in Early American Economy and Society from the Library Company of Philadelphia, which notably is edited by our own Kathy Matson. Welcome, Danielle. Um, thanks so much, Will. And um, just, you know, thank you to the Library Company for hosting me tonight. Um, I have to say that uh, the LCP um, was really important to the development of this project from its early stages as a dissertation through its manifestation as a book. Um, Jim Green, Connie King, Kathy Matson have been especially supportive, um, and I want to give a big shout out to the entire um, material text crew. So um, my plan for tonight is to offer a brief overview of the book, what it covers, its claims, its stakes, and then take a closer look at one, one particular chapter. Um, and that chapter just happens to be one that um, two material effects material text colleagues um, happened to contribute to in, in significant ways. Um, and that was Jessica Linker and Juliet Sperling. Um, it also centers, it's a chapter that centers Philadelphia. So my talk today um, is very much a Philadelphia story all around. All right, so let me begin um, with the larger picture. Uh, so from the beginning, I really wanted this book to tell the stories of people who didn't necessarily write books or even read them but whose histories are embedded in the history of the book in the Americas nevertheless. Book historians and material culture scholars in the Zoom room might kind of understand what I'm gesturing towards here. Um, it's really impossible to separate text from textiles when it comes to the development of print culture, the print public sphere, and print capitalism in the early modern period. Um, novels, newspapers, broadsides, and pamphlets, they were all printed on paper made from household rags. These were interdependent material economies. The manufacture and traded textiles um, inevitably kept the making and circulation of books alive and well. Um, but I also take seriously the idea of textiles as books in their own right. Um, and here I'm really indebted to 20th and 21st century um, decolonial movements and the textile makers often tied to them. So you might think um, about independence movements, um, for instance, in 20th century India, Ghana and the Chiapas region of Mexico. Um, but more recently, um, a movement that really struck me was a collection of uh, weavers, Maya weavers in Guatemala, who in 2016 were seeking to protect their textile traditions from global fashion houses, you might think like urban outfitters here, um, who were really kind of coming in and appropriating those fabrics. And the leader of the group um, argued that, uh, quote, textiles are the books that the colony was not able to burn. And that, and that statement really, um, I thought, uh, rang true uh, to earlier periods as well. I mean, of course, the statement is referring to the early years of Spanish conquest and the destruction of indigenous writings, such as the Maya codices. Um, however, the statement also shows that European and settler colonial understandings of the book um, constitute just one among many possible definitions of the kinds of objects that we might call books. And um, here's another shout out to Philadelphia, South Philly this time. Um, around the same time that I became aware of the Meyer Weavers movement, I was living in South Philly and I came across this mural on 9th Street. Um, it's titled uh, Weaving Culture and it delves into the idea of textiles as writing, especially in post-colonial regions of the world. Um, but it made me realize, and this is a close up of some of the um, information about 
the artist and uh, the student artist who um, collaborated with him, as well as kind of some of the um, uh, the the panels that show the kinds of uh, pictorial art that that serves as a kind of um, uh, uh, literacy, alphabetic literacy. Um, so it's titled Weaving Culture, and it made me think and realize that the history I wanted to tell about textiles and their makers is a story that is ongoing as people around the world continue to challenge various uh, forms of racial violence, colonial occupation, Western imperialism, and cultural appropriation. And so I think that, you know, I, I want to say that my book does start at a much earlier time period, um, but the ramifications for the histories that I'm talking about um, are ongoing in the world today. So. The fabric of empire obviously examines a much earlier period, but taking a cue uh, from more contemporary post-colonial struggles, I wanted to offer a new model for thinking about the different media, languages, literacies, and textualities present in an already globalizing early Atlantic world. So I contend that uh, a material and labor-oriented history of the book in the Americas might reveal that the origins of its literary traditions are just as much woven as they are written. Moreover, these origins are global. Focusing on the making, using, and circulating of textiles um, is a way uh, to expand the study of literary cultures beyond alphabetic writing. Um, and obviously, uh, uh, scholars in Native American Indigenous studies have been calling on us to do this for quite a long time. So on one hand, it does that. On the other, um, it offers a book history of global modernity and the emergence of racial capitalism. So the goal is really to center the woven stories of textile workers in order to show their centrality to early modern Atlantic cultures of the book. This was not an easy task um, for someone trained as an early Americanist uh, first and an Atlanticist second. Um, I faced a number of challenges. Uh, doing this kind of study necessitated taking a trans-hemispheric approach and studying material and literary cultures across Atlantic, Pacific, and Indian Ocean commercial systems. It also meant digging into entirely new historiographies. At one point, I went down the rabbit hole, and um, I, I, was, I was reading about the Tang-era um, poetry. Uh, so it really kind of stretched uh, uh, my initial training as an early Americanist. Um, for that reason, the book is set up as a series of case studies. Um, it is not a comprehensive guide to 200 years of world book and textile history. Rather, each chapter centers on what I came to see as key moments in global Atlantic history. For instance, the Spanish conquest of um, uh, uh, Central and South America and the establishment of a Pacific route to China, the British settlement of the Virginia colony, the rise of the British East India Company, the American Revolution, U.S. entry into the China trade, the U.S.-Mexican War, and spanning all of these events, um, the development of plantation and factory systems. Um, and I chose these events uh, because uh, they led to new developments in the manufacture and circulation of different textiles, but more importantly, they shaped and reshaped again the geographies of the world and its people along racialized lines. Each of these moments I mentioned ushered in new ways of managing and exploiting labor and controlling resources. And a lot of those um, uh, impulses to manage, exploit, and control really actually like, were centered on textile production. So my talk tonight focuses on just one of those moments, uh, the US entry into the China trade, and is drawn from the fifth chapter of my book, which is titled Oriental America, Silk Geographies in the Era of the Early Republic. This chapter offers an account of how China and Chinese material, literary, and visual cultures were central to how US, early US Americans came to understand who they were and where they were in the world. Um, so obviously, uh, the transatlantic print trade shaped American reading habits. I'm not, con I'm not contesting that, um, and consequently shaped their understandings of themselves. Um, but tonight, I want to offer a slightly different story that takes us a bit further east than London. Um, and so, you know, I mean, China was was always loomed large uh, when it came to um, the Americas, right? So North America was, of course, symbolically and geographically bound to the Far East from the so-called discovery uh, to the founding of the United States. When Europeans sailed west across the Atlantic, they were in search of a route to China and India. 
When they failed to find China, they sought to transform American geographies into labor regimes that could produce commodities to substitute for Eastern goods, as well as raw materials that might sell well in China. To put it simply, the never-ending pursuit of China drove many New World colonial projects from the beginning of the 16th century through the 19th century. And ultimately, Manifest Destiny, Westward Expansion, and the search for the Northwest Passage were also always about getting as far east as possible by going west. Um, but China, I think, became especially important um, following uh, the American Revolution. Um, at that point, uh, North America's position within a global imaginary was really put into relief. Um, centuries of um, already existing Western colonialism had produced a global order that divided the world into ideologically inflected conceptual regions, right? So modern versus ancient, civilized versus savage, settled versus wild, white versus non-white, orient, occident, and so forth. Where one was located on this map really determined their geopolitical relationship to Great Britain, uh, to Europe, and the Near and Far East. And critics of the United States were not sure where to situate the nation in relation to the civilized nations of Europe, and I'm putting civil, civil, civilized in quotation marks here, um, is distance from Western Europe located it as a geographic other, right? Akin to the Near East and India. Its language and religion, however, positioned it as proximal to European nations. But at the same time, white Americans' proximity to indigenous and enslaved communities troubled their inclusion within like a quote unquote white European world order of things. And finally, the United States was cast as a nation of business owners and merchants with no history, no culture, and no aesthetic traditions of their own. Um, and James Egan has touched on this. Um, he argues that the East offered an alternative cultural model to Europe, as well as a solution to America's perceived cultural inferiority and instability rather than, and this is a quote from, from him, um, becoming more civilized by becoming more European, um, American writers and artists adopted the aesthetic styles and standards long associated with an East cast as superior aesthetically to both America and Europe. So in the remainder of this talk, um, I wanna take us to China and back again to Philadelphia in order to think about the material and literary relationships between those two regions and why China became so important to early US national identity. Um, so this is the Empress of China, um, the first boat to make it to, or ship to make it to, to, to make the voyage. Um, and I'm sure many of you are familiar with the story. Um, for those of you who aren't, I, I'll, I'll rehearse it yet again. Um, but within months of the peace settlement between the United States and Great Britain, America's, Americans set their eyes on China. Um, and the voyage was always about more than just access to Chinese markets. Um, it was really a diplomatic mission in which the United States would announce and establish um, itself among uh, the many nations of the world. So as you might expect, the event was highly performative. Um, and it kind of goes as follows. So the Empress of China, pictured here, um, left New York on George Washington's birthday in 1783. It was an American-built ship um, whose owners included Robert Morris, who of course helped finance the American Revolution. It was captained by uh, US Naval officer and war veteran John Green. Um, Supercargoes included Samuel Shaw, and Thomas Randall, who are former officers in the US Continental Army. The cargo consisted primarily of ginseng, which of course is a North American raw material uh, turned commodity. Uh, they carried with them a letter from President Washington directed to the Emperor of China. And when the Empress arrived in Canton, it fired 13 cannon shots for the 13 states in the Union. So that's really all just to say that the journey was a carefully constructed political performance as well as a commercial venture. It was really about establishing um, the US as a, a sort of world commercial power. Um, but you know, I kind of want to think a little bit about what it meant to, to make that voyage and what it meant to be an American, um, US American in China, um, as well as how that influenced the way that um, people in the US also understood China. So, um, you know, distance and time were really integral to how Americans understood China and Chinese commodities, um, as well as how Americans in China expressed 
um, their feeling of being kind of on the other side of the world. So for instance, um, it took the Empress uh, five months to complete the journey. Most ships uh, would take about two years to get there and back again, traversing most of the globe in the process. American merchants could expect that their correspondence would take four to five months, if not longer, to reach relatives and business partners at home and vice versa. Um, so like astronomers studying stars light years away, readers receiving letters from across this distance were offered little more than a glimpse of the past, of what had happened nearly half a year before. And then add to that, uh, the China accessible to Westerners in China was further mediated by the Canton system. This system barred um, all foreigners access to the mainland and reinforced this idea of imperial, of imperial culture shrouded in, in mystery. Um, so while North Americans kept journals of their time abroad, their limited access to the mainland really meant that these accounts reproduce an outsider looking in perspective um, that end up telling us more about other Americans, um, as well as uh, British, Dutch, and Portuguese traders than they ever do about Chinese peoples or cultures. As Americans wrote about a place they did not have access to either linguistically or physically for the most part, they inevitably crafted accounts that promoted the idea of China's inscrutability and fed already existing Orientalist ideologies. So that's to say, you know, the delayed access to news from home, as well as information from the interior, served to reinforce China's otherness and the sense that China was not only geographically remote, but also temporarily removed from Western modernity. So in this chapter, uh, I suggest that we might characterize these years, uh, that is the early national period, as the era of American Orientalism. Um, and of course, you know, I have a quote from Said here from uh, his now classic Orientalism, where in which he reminds us uh, that Western constructions of the East are fundamental and foundational to the West's own definition of itself. Um, he writes, uh, quote, the Orient has helped to define Europe or the West as its contrasting image, idea, personality, and experience. The Orient is an integral part of European material civilization and culture. For Americans, the East served a similar purpose. And importantly, that relationship was navigated through material culture, literature, and commerce. As is the case with most examples of Orientalism, uh, the image of China that America consumed was often actually an image of itself reflected through the looking glass. So I have a kind of humorous and likely apocryphal instance of this um, in an article up on your slide now, um, attributed to an author named uh, Chung Po, and it was published in the Boston Courier in 1853. And in the article, uh, the author claims to recall um, the Empress's historic 1783-1784 uh, voyage. So just off the bat, um, I think we can definitely uh, say that um, this author probably was not there. This would make them quite old. Um, if uh, they had been in China and Canton in 1784. Um, but what's interesting about it is that uh, whoever wrote it goes on to offer a kind of linguistic interpretation of the US and sort of emergent US history as filtered through um, its transliteration into Chinese. Um, so uh, yeah, in the article, the author claims uh, that he's you know, recalling this historic voyage and he writes, foreign names when written in Chinese uh, acquire a significance which is often strikingly curious. The phrase Yankee Doodle, he explains, could be written Yankee to Lili, translating to the flag of the ocean, sovereign people of the world. He continues, the name Washington is no less happy in his transition into Chinese. Uh, Washington, he explains, signifies no less than the rescue and glory at last. Could the name of the father of his country be expressed with more felicitous truth? Um, so these like supposed translations of American into Chinese and back again into American exemplify the representational aesthetics that I'm calling Oriental America. So what's going on here is that America only came to know itself through the English translation of its transliteration into Chinese. And I'm just going to repeat that. Um, it came to know itself through the English translation of its transliteration into Chinese. Um, and moreover, it's through this translation and transliteration that the U.S. comes to articulate its supposed exceptionalism, right? Um, sovereigns of the world, um, rescuing uh, 
the rescue and the glory, uh, essentially bringing and spreading democracy everywhere, right? Um, so, I mean, these are the ideologies that we come to associate with American exceptionalism. Um, and, you know, what it shows is the idea that America is using China to establish its own exceptional status. And I think that that's really interesting. Um, so, and obviously, I mean, the other thing I'll say, I'll not speak to Ken, um, I don't think this was obviously a Chinese author, right? This is an American who's using China to do that kind of work for him. So, uh, but I do want to say that like, the American print culture of China was not one-sided, of course. Uh, um, Chinese visual artists and pattern designers produced an image of the West, of the East for the West, um, precisely how Westerners expected to see it. So in the 1830s, um, artists uh, such as um, Quan Luen Qin, um, whose work is pictured here, began producing art exclusively for Western markets and to largely satisfy the curious Western consumer gaze. So most of these, like the silk shop, a silk shop picture here, provided detailed representations um, or visual narratives of spaces Americans were largely forbidden to see. So the interiors of shops, factories, homes, and so forth. And these souvenir paintings presented interiors in dissection. So they really offered Westerners at home a kind of intimate slice of China by allowing them to virtually visit factories and enter shops and that kind of thing. Um, so Quan Luen Chin uh, was the most prolific of these artists. He ran a studio. And he had a whole team of artists that were mass producing these images for the export market. So in his early years, um, Chin had actually an apprentice under the English painter George Chinnery, and he learned English and European styles such as oil landscape and portrait painting. Most of his work um, that was produced for the export market ended up um, being in more traditional Chinese medium of watercolor. But I think that we can think about how um, possibly apprenticing under an English painter prepared him um, to run a shop that was really interested in producing images of China that Americans kind of expected to see. And this piece in particular, um, and, and here, here's where I can give a shout out to, to Juliet for, for her insight as an art historian, um, but it's really typical of the artist's visual play with Western Orientalist tropes. So one thing that's happening here, you know, is called a silk shop and is promising viewers an intimate view of like the richly detailed silk shop and its commodities. Um, but it remains largely inscrutable. Like, I don't know if you, if anyone can actually see any silk in this picture. Um, there's the one piece uh, that's being shown on the counter, but besides that, there's no actual silk being shown for the most part. Um, and so you have all of these frames that are leading the eye further and further to the innermost room where the silk is stored, um, but it's all bundled up. You don't actually get to see it. And then you have uh, all these framing devices, the slatted ceiling at the top, the wooden pillars on the sides. Um, you have the interior latticework screens, um, doors and windows. Pair that with the Chinese characters on scrolls and boards. And it all delivers um, a highly mediated space from which the Western viewers actually denied full access or understanding. Um, so it kind of, uh, uh, so their understanding of China and Chinese aesthetics is already filtered through an Orientalist frame here. And what's kind of like really interesting and brilliant about what Chin does is that in order to present China to US Americans, he has to, he has to make it inscrutable, right? He has to actually deny any access to it, right? He can't even, he can't show the silk that's in the silk shops. So this kind of work, um, American uh, writers in China um, inevitably uh, and unwittingly reproduced um, in, in discourses about the East. And I want to say that's not actually my finger. I had to I had to find a picture of this of this text because I couldn't I couldn't find mine on my phone. Um, but anyway, so uh, this is a U.S. missionary and travel writer Henrietta Shuck's work. Uh, Shuck arrived in Singapore in 1836. Uh, she spent six years in Macau and eventually moved to Hong Kong in 1842. Uh, she uh, published an account of her travels aptly titled scenes in China or sketches of the, the country, religion, and customs of the Chinese. Um, but of course, what we actually end up getting a sketch of is um, Henrietta Schuck herself. Um, and so I think that, you know, I just want to emphasize again the idea of um, the way that U.S. Americans uh, uh, present China, um, along with sort of like the way that it's presented by artists such as Chin, um, is a sort of a rich visual field um, that is also 
always denying um, understanding of what people are seeing. And so it's really feeding into um, an understanding of China's Orientalism. But again, it's always actually more about the Americans than it is ever about um, China or Chinese people. So um, at home in the United States, these kinds of travel narratives, as well as export art, such as chins, tended to influence how American women shaped Chinese fabric, the fabric of China, into the material narratives of the nation. Um, China, as an imagined geography, a metaphor, and a manufacturer, helped Americans locate themselves geographically and ideologically among the other nations of the world. Okay, so um, I want to take us back to Philadelphia to see how Chinese material cultures were influencing emergent material narratives of nation. And I'll begin with a needlepoint picture embroidered by a Philadelphia schoolgirl named Sarah Skinner. Um, and I wanna say uh, Jessica Linker was the one who helped uh, actually sort of figure out what that building is in the background. And I'll, and I'll get to that in a second. Um, so this piece is titled Calliope and Cleo. Um, and Sarah Skinner most likely stitched it in the 1810s when she was a pupil at Miss Malfi's School for Girls in Philadelphia. The iconography in this piece was designed by Philadelphia art teacher Samuel Falwell, um, who transferred um, images like this onto fabric for schoolgirls and other women to embroider. Um, so when you think about it, this is like very much a multi-authored piece uh, with Falwell uh, kind of like creating the pattern and um, uh, Sarah Skinner coming in and completing it with thread. And on the surface, uh, you know, the picture, I mean, for those of you looking at it, you're probably thinking, wow, this, you know, really promotes popular early Republican ideologies. Um, and I want to unpack a little bit, you know, a surface reading what's happening here. So at the center, we see the Greek muses of history and poetry. Uh, Calliope presumably is the one working on a portrait of George Washington. Cleo is at work on a manuscript that includes the words history, society, fine arts, institution. Um, in the background, uh, that domed sort of neoclassical building, um, that's actually the Pennsylvania Academy of Fine Arts, uh, which originally stood at 10th and Chestnut. It, I think it burned down in the 1840s and was rebuilt at some point. Um, at Calliope's feet, uh, you see a globe turned to North America, and it rests on top of you know, several books and a scroll with musical notations. To top it all off, uh, you have a bald eagle, a native to North America, surveying the scene from overhead. Um, and then, of course, in the foreground, uh, you see a young girl, perhaps representative of Sarah Skinner herself, and she sits there stitching her own sampler or needlework, you know, kind of working herself into um, this uh, uh, very kind of classical um, Republican idea of, 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 of U.S. nationhood. So yes, um, a surface reading uh, would reveal how, you know, the needlepoint positions the United States as the newest inheritor of Greco-Roman art, literature, politics, and imperial ambition, right? Like it kind of, um, it, it seeks to locate the U.S. within longstanding allegories of Western civilization. Um, but before I start sounding like uh, the 1776 report, I really want to put pressure on that narrative. And I think that the study of material culture helps do that. So, I mean, after all, like it is, uh, the iconography might be Greco-Roman, but the America that emerges um, was, was stitched out of Chinese thread, right? And so, uh, you know, it revealed the thread itself that Skinner wrote her visual narrative with came from the East rather than the West. And it starts to put a little bit of pressure on this idea of America as the U.S. as the sort of latest inheritor of um, Greco-Roman art, literature, politics, and empire. Um, to put it another way, uh, you know, the United States was always already transnational and transhemispheric. And if we want to go a little bit deeper, right, so I'm asking you to kind of look at the surface and you see Calliope and Cleo and the neoclassical architecture but if you know, you know, I'm asking you to think transnationally in terms of the thread that made it. And if we want to think about um, the canvas that it was printed, that it was that it was stitched on, right? It's most likely cotton or linen, right? Um, so we're talking about cotton fields and flax fields uh, that 
are only there because of indigenous deterritorialization um, and that possibly were uh, farmed and tended by many degree, many people of varying degrees of unpaid labor. So, you know, I think if you look behind the surface, behind the narrative that it presents, you really kind of get a larger, a larger picture of the people that were foundational to um, uh, the US. So, I mean, that's the reason I find Sarah Skinner's needlepoint useful. Uh, I think it really shows how a closer attention to the materials and practices embedded within these kinds of locally produced material texts can overhaul right, the surface narratives of nation building, as well as the understandings of the geographies and people through which the United States emerged, right? Geographies and people often purposely excluded from celebratory uh, narratives of nation, but whose stories are there nonetheless. So even if, um, you know, uh, early Americans, early U.S. Americans wanted to sort of obfuscate the labor regimes um, at home that were making their lives possible, um, Americans were very much aware of where the import materials were coming from. Um, it's what made them desirable. So um, alongside fabric and thread, American merchants imported furniture such as this facilitated ornamental sewing. This is a lacquered Wetmore sewing table um, using the uh, Pearl River. And I, you know, I have a close-up of that uh, so you can kind of really see the detail. And then below it um, are uh, items of um, our, you know, silk, uh, silk thread imported from China as well. Um, and so the women who could, you know, most women obviously couldn't, couldn't, couldn't afford um, this kind of furniture, um, but for the woman who could afford it, you know, she was conducting her embroidery while gazing at American and European ships entering the Chinese harbor. But I want to move a little bit to thinking about this question of, uh, you know, understanding where these materials are coming from. You know, the Wetmore table, uh, um, also reflects the way that China was described in geography books increasingly taught in U.S. schools in the time period. So I have a quote here from Robert Davidson's Geography Epitomized, um, which includes the following verse. "'Tis China that's washed by the waters Pacific. Her people and soil are both vastly prolific. Their cities and bridges and world great fame, their art and their labor to ages proclaim." So I bring in uh, Davidson's uh, geography book, um, which might feel a little bit out of place, um, because I want to emphasize that it was it was important um, to understand where the thread came from, right? So schoolgirls such as Sarah Skinner needed to know where China was, um, and so U.S. entry into the China trade just happened to coincide with what Martin Buchner has called the geographic revolution and uh, new developments in education for both boys and girls that included um, geographic literacy. So uh, Bruckner writes, uh, what appears to prop up the self-image <clears throat> of the imperial, colonial, and early national subject is the demonstration of geographic literacy. So expanding his argument slightly um, with, with Sarah Skinner's needle, um, silk needlepoint picture in mind, um, so the picture reveals uh, both literal and imagined geographies, right? Like it's, it's set with uh, Philadelphia in the backdrop, but it's placing um, the sort of Greco Roman past um, in conversation with the Philadelphia present. Um, and it's also showing various degrees of tactile and alphabetic literacies, right? She's using needle and thread to sew images, but um, there are also uh, words and various um, items that represent alphabetic literacy. So it reveals a kind of a, a geographic literacy that works on different levels and that is about book knowledge, but it's about other forms of knowledge as well. Um, and so for girls like Sarah Skinner, um, we see the ability to use import materials to stitch or make worlds and to put oneself on both literal and allegorical maps. And I want to say that uh, uh, that's a skill that becomes increasingly important to um, a gendered national subject. Um, and it's a particular skill that, that involves geographic literacy, alphabetic li literacy, but then also tactile literacies. And uh, Susanna Ralston was right in the middle of it. Um, and she also was an occasional Philadelphian, so I felt like it was okay to bring her into my Philadelphia talk. Um, she performed at the New Theater on Chestnut Street between 1794 and 1796 before um, defecting to Boston. Um, but Ralston uh, is best known as the author of, of course, America's first bestseller, Charlotte Temple. But she was also America's first woman geographer. And on her death in 1824, 
She will be memorialized as, found, as a foundational American educator as well. The curriculum at her Boston Academy, which she established in 1797, interwove lessons traditional to women's education, um, such as embroidery, with those such as geography, with the hope of awakening, and this is a quote from Rousen, a desire to be informed of the historical events which have taken place in such or such nations. And so what I find really interesting about Rousen is that she's teaching world history via embroidery and geography. As one former student recalls, um, our lessons were reading, writing, geography, drawing, painting, and silk embroidery. Rousen also published uh, two geography textbooks, um, an abridgment of universal geography in 1805, and used first step in geography being a series of exercises making the tour of the habitable globe in 1811. And her Universal geography also teaches students to locate China in relation to the United States. And I think that that's really important. It's not just where China is, but how do you get there from where you are, right? So she says, uh, China is bounded on the east by the Pacific Ocean, which divides it from America. She goes on to describe the commodities traded there, um, noting that Canton is the greatest port in China. Raw silk much abounds in China. Chinese silks and gauzes are also valuable articles of traffic. So geography, books, education, and mapping practices helped ground that early national citizenship in participation in the global economy as well. Um, so the, the ability to recognize um, not just where you are in the map, but where all the things you're buying are coming from. And maybe we need to take that lesson to heart today as well. Um, so we also combine these lessons by having students embroider map samplers that merge ornamental accomplishments uh, with the acquisition of geographic principles and national history. I find this one really interesting. Um, it was uh, made by one of her students, Lydia Withington, um, and it's an embroidered map of the Boston Harbor and the Battle of Bunker Hill. So it does this thing where it really, it combines, uh, it becomes a national geography, right? So it's combining a map of the city of Boston with um, an important moment in um, American history. So it was actually copied from a map, an account of the battle printed in the Pennsylvania Magazine in 1775. Pennsylvania and Philly, they keep coming back. Um, but these and other forms of needlework were located at the intersection of American print, emerging American print and material cultures. They refashioned geography-oriented material copied from atlases, geography books, travel narratives, and other print sources. So, you know, taking us back to Philly, um, one Philadelphia stationer even advertised um, what he was calling geographical cards uh, that he argued, um, here's a quote, were so arranged that to the young ladies working maps at the quarters of the world, um, this system will be singularly useful. So he was selling um, cards that people could transfer onto fabric in order to uh, stitch their own worlds, their own clothes. And um, students at the Westtown School, uh, founded outside of the city in 1801, seemed to maybe be some of the young ladies uh, the stationer had in mind. And I want to, you know, I want to say that geographic geographic embroidery um, was certainly a short-lived. Uh, trend, but it was a very trendy trend um, among middle and elite women um, and their education. And you see advertisements placed in ladies' magazines in cities ranging from New York and Boston, Philadelphia to Charleston that all mention this kind of work, this idea of doing map embroideries on, on silk. Um, but the students at Westtown really stepped it up a bit um, with making these silk globes. And I want to say that, you know, the West Town Globes are exceptional. Um, I, I haven't really seen anyone else, um, any, any other examples of this. Um, but I do think, uh, you know, we can take a closer look and consider them in more detail um, uh, alongside other forms of sort of embroidered geographies. These globes are very much material texts uh, that utilize globally sourced materials, the silk and fabric. The silk fabric and thread is coming from China. Um, there's Indian cotton and North American linen that's used for stuffing. Um, and a lot of the, the, the more specific uh, lettering is, is done in ink and paint. So these particular ones were made by Hannah Gib Gibbons, Mary Troth, and Mary Trimble. 
Um, if you want to take a closer look, the raised stitches indicate the outlines of continents, islands, oceans, um, and nations. They demarcate navigational lines, such as latitude and longitude. Um, the names of countries, regions, and oceans are written or painted in ink. And the finished project really combines hybrid materials as well as hybrid forms of representation. Um, and globes, you know, the takeaway, I guess, is that globes, these kinds of globes and silk samplers and other needlework really show how imported Chinese commodities, you know, in terms of silk in particular, and aesthetics might transform, might be transformed into American material texts that express U.S. imperial ambitions. Um, maps and um, maps and empires are obvious allies. And I find it really interesting that um, a lot of these uh, uh, girls in schools are are, are learning the history of the sort of newly established United States within the history of the world and learning that through embroidery that they're embroidering on this imported um, Chinese silk. So from the relatively provincial and sequestered position of the female academy, these young women made objects that established their place as cosmopolitans, as citizens and uh, makers of worlds. So I'm Coming, I'm, I'm, I'm coming towards the end of the talk here. Uh, so uh, it would be remiss uh, to suggest that ceramics, fans, furniture, tea, and textiles were the only representatives of China in the US in this period. Um, Chinese citizens occasionally and in greater and greater numbers, of course, traveled to the United States. Um, and Afang Moi was, uh, was uh, you know, supposedly the first Chinese woman to immigrate to the United States, so whether that immigration was forced or voluntary um, is, is unknown. She was born in 1819 and came to the United States in 1834 with um, merchants Nathaniel and Frederick Karn. Um, and she was staged alongside their cargo of Chinese commodities in what was advertised as the Chinese Lady Exhibit. Those who attended the exhibit could purchase a souvenir titled Afang Moi in her room. Um, and I think that's what's pictured on the right, the advertisement on the left uh, was for her appearance in Philadelphia. Um, and I really think, you know, the, the souvenir picture um, that you see on the right here, it resembles the kinds of like highly detailed interiors that, um, that Chin was painting um, in his studio sometime earlier, actually uh, contemporary. But needless to say, the broadside, the exhibition and the souvenir um, image staged more in Orientalist terms, emphasizing her exoticism, um, you know, the exoticism of her clothing, um, her language and her bound feet. Um, she traveled with a translator uh, and that was kind of, again, that mediated, that mediated kind of access uh, that you saw in uh, Chin's uh, uh, silk shop, but here it's, you know, it's happening in real time. It's, you know, it's, it's an actual person. Yeah, so uh, she was staged in metonymic relationship to the imported commodities offered for sale. Um, she is also a quote-unquote good from China, and purchasing the Chinese goods meant one could also purchase more, um, symbolically, but also materially through the cost of the admission ticket and the souvenir print. So again, I mean, I think that we really need to think about um, uh, the ways um, that U.S. white identity um, was forged through its own through its exploitation of non-white peoples, not just in 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 the contiguous United States. Um, and uh, North American colonies, but it's happening on a, on a global scale. Newspaper records suggest that Moy was still performing as late as 1850, despite having only intended to visit the United States for a period of two years. Um, it's kind of hard to tell what happened there. Um, by 1850, um, U.S. participation in the China trade had declined greatly, according to Madeleine Shaw in the late 1830s, coinciding with the first Opium War. Only a few ships from Philadelphia and New York were actually bringing silk in from China. So that might've meant that um, there were fewer opportunities for Moi to actually return to China. Um, the other thing that I would point out too is that the Chinese lady exhibit uh, tracks with changes in how China figured into a sort of, the way that the US was imagining itself um, in this sort of global imaginary. Um, Moi became an example of changed American views towards China. Rather than a culture and power to aspire to, uh, China was increasingly um, seen as a sort of fading, global empire. So as, as I've argued in this talk, uh, China was transformed into material and literary texts that shaped early U.S. white American identity. The construction of an oriental 
um, America deflected criticism of US arts and sciences by allying America with China rather than Europe. China loomed large in the American imagination, as is evident in both literature and material culture produced in the early decades of the Republic. Coinciding with the US entry into the China trade developments in geography and cartography made the world increasingly available to average Americans. We might even say that the founding of the United States necessitated cartographic developments that could put the new nation on the global map, enabling it to determine its cultural, geographic, and political relationship to Europe and the world. This position was navigated within literary works, but also visual and material cultures. While it's impossible to know how many of the map-making American women um, that figured into um, some of my other examples here um, actually attended Afangmoy in her room, um, the objects uh, they created certainly did put them in material contact with fabric worked by hands at looms on the other side of the world. So China, in this sense, is not only a symbol and metaphor in American literatures and material cultures, it's also like Afangmoy, Material, materially present in the founding aesthetic traditions of the nation, right? In the silk that was loomed by hands across the world that these women are, are working with. So the chapter I shared with you tonight um, examines just one set of global Atlantic connections. The remaining chapters bring a larger array of important uh, global Atlantic figures into the mix. Uh, for instance, silk promoters in Algonquian communities in Virginia, English wool workers and South Asian calico weavers, spinners of homespun, enslaved Afro-Caribbean seamstresses, and um, uh, a Basque runaway nun turned Spanish conquistador and textile merchant in New Spain. All right. Thank you, everyone, for attending, and I'm happy to field some questions. Thank you so much. This sounds like a tremendous book, Danielle. And um, for all of you listening, I dropped in a link where you can purchase it from Johns Hopkins University Press, and we also have a promo code that saves you a little bit on it as well. It's a very pretty book. I have it here. So even if you don't want to read it, it, it makes a great coffee table book. It is a great coffee table. And there's lots of pictures. So <laughs> I love it. Um, I just wanted to open things up with a question that emerges for me. Um, I was really interested in uh, what you were saying about the you know, sort of earliest trip was in 1783 of uh, the Empress of China and sort of that encounter that contact uh, in the early national period between these Americans who are both performing their state their place on the global stage but also trying to interpret through their own lexicon what they're encountering on the other side of these oceans after you know six months of travel or whatever and as you were talking about some of the some of the adjectives you ascribe to them inscrutability um, uh, otherness the sense of them being both, uh, geographically and temporally removed. I wonder if there, if if you recall any instances of them describing what they're encountering using sort of a rhetoric of indigeneity, just because it seems like that would be a sort of lexicon that would be available to them, or if they're just coming up with something entirely new, whole cloth as they're encountering this new space. I, I, yeah, I mean, I think I think you certainly do, um, and in other ways, you, you don't. Uh, so, I mean, I think that you you get descriptions of um, like you know like you know the the uh, the broadside for Alpha and Moy um, that are are bringing in the kind of ethnographic language that you see in early natural histories, um, and even in Henrietta Schacks, right? It's the customs, the religion, right? I mean, this is the this is coming straight out of like 17th, 18th century natural histories, ethnographies, and the kinds of, um, well, we can go back to Columbus's journal, right? And he's like describing feathers in um, Arawak people's hair and how tall people are, the color of their skin. Um, and so I think that you you definitely see that. Um, what's, what's, what's interesting though, is that the only people that most of the people writing these accounts are, are um, encountering are, are people that are in charge of the factory system, right? So you're rarely, you're not seeing, you're not seeing communities, you're not seeing families, you're not seeing homes, yeah. right? And so I think that that was one of the things that, that, that made it difficult to translate that sort of European um, language of the sort of encounter with ingenuity to uh, these contexts, um, because they couldn't actually see it, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. The people, so the people you you get descriptions of are, um, you know, thinking about like uh, Shaw's journals, right? Uh, uh, the British, right? Um, 
the Dutch, uh, like other people who are other other national European groups that are that are in um, the sort of factories, the, the chem system, like in those factories at that time. Um, so it's like yes and no uh, would be my would be my answer. It's almost like it's almost like it it didn't work, right? Like they wanted yeah. to they wanted to show up and and have this ready sort of uh, uh, lexicon of you know about how you describe indigenous people, um, but then didn't have access to you know the people to describe, right? Um, mm-hmm. to you, but oh, that's very interesting. Um, actually, I've got a question that sort of aligns. You mentioned Alfong Moy. Uh, David Koslow asked, when did Alfong Moy travel to Richmond, Virginia, and for what purpose? Any ideas? I mean, so she, she her travels, I mean, it was based over 20 years. So um, I was looking at, uh, in the book, I looked more at her um, trip to, to New Orleans, and I brought in the Philadelphia broadside because it's a Philadelphia talk. Um, but uh, I mean, I would imagine again, and I think most of her appearances were in the 30s, um, but I'm not exactly sure which date uh, she would have been in Richmond, Virginia. Um, that said, uh, I think that there is a good article um, up on the library company website about Alphonsoy uh, that might include that information. And if I were more dexterous, I would find it and drop it into the chat, but I can only do one thing at a time. So exactly. yeah, maybe I can get that in session notes. You know, taught me not to try to do that. <laughs> uh, lots of comments thanking you for a wonderful presentation, by the way. Um, I'm just going to jump to the next substantive comment and question from Mark Maddox. Um, he writes, your reading of Skinner's uh, story, uh, or sorry, your reading of Sarah Skinner is a story all about the history of books sorry, all about the history of books gets flipped, turned upside down when we turn out, uh, when when we turn not only to the material literacies beyond the book, but to the makers of the intermedial texts um, that doesn't sit well, uh, or that, that, you know, like particularly those texts don't sit at the center of the um, narratives of the nation. He really appreciates that. Um, he asked, can, can I, you speak a bit about the tech, the tactile literacies of national subjecthood practiced by women, and about how that forces us to rethink the scholarly ideas about the gendered construction of nation that rely exclusively, or at least more heavily, on alphabetic texts in print. Um, I think so. I think you know. I'm thinking back to you know we can we can go back before uh, uh, the Amer- or to the American Revolution rather. And I mean, at this point, I'm I'm not rehearsing any any ideas that are that are new. Uh, this has all been well established by scholars before me. Um, but you certainly see your gender tactile literacies being sort of sewn into the fabric of nation with uh, um, spinning bees during the American Revolution. Um, and then fast forward, I think uh, it was Benjamin Rush who said that, um, you know, to these kinds of gender tactile literacies, such as embroidery, um, you really needed to sort of up like the education of um, of uh, U.S. women, right, in terms of thinking about um, ideas of Republican womanhood um, and teaching them geography and history alongside those tactile literacies would be really important. Um, so, uh, Mark, I don't know if I'm answering your question. It was a long one. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think, I think you know, with that, that Susanna Rawson really kind of had it right. You know, she's like, how do we teach, how do we teach world history through these tools that are deemed kind of acceptable for women's education. Um, and obviously in this time period, um, and we're really talking about like like elite bourgeois white women, um, but uh, you know, their education really was about making them um, suitable uh, wives and mothers uh, to raise the sort of next um, generation of US Americans. Um, and so these kinds of, this kind of work was sort of deemed a part of that, a part of that history. And again, like I'm not rehearsing, you know, these are these are these are established arguments um, made by, uh, you know, historians before before I came along. But I don't know, Mark, does that help? Well, you know, I mean, just just to add a note from your talk, I mean, I thought that the example of the geographic embroidery, those silk globes is a really interesting example of um, women participating in a sort of. Uh, U.S. imperial ambitions, right? Mm-hmm. Now, I mean, like, that's a really interesting way to enlist them in that hegemonic project. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, um, you know, and, uh, and and also the way that that 
um, imperial ambition is 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 commercial ambition, right? Um, yeah. uh, it, and it's really about uh, you know knowing where the things you're buying are coming from, um, and uh, and the way that that kind of feeds into early ideas of of what it means to be a U.S. American in that time period. Need a quick clarification. A quick clarification from Mark. So I'm going to bring it in. Um, I guess I'm asking if your approach to tactile literacy suggests paradigms other than the Republican womanhood, etc., that were foreclosed by dominant ideologies of print and its content. Yeah, and I think you know, I mean, that's Mark. What I was trying to do with the the Sarah Skinner piece is saying, yeah, on the surface, you see, uh, you know, these elite white women being taught these tactile literacies. But when you kind of look beyond the service of the narrative that they're actually creating, right, with 5P and Clio and the sort of neoclassical structures, um, what you see actually is how foundational um, uh, uh, flax fields, cotton fields, enslaved labor, deterritorialization was to those foundational Republican ideologies, right? And so, to it, you know, needlepoint pictures like Skinner, like, you know, that's why I was like, let's let's avoid the 1776 report here. It's not celebratory. Look beyond that surface narrative. And what you're really going to see um, is a history of racial violence, right? Upon which a very nice elite position um, rested on. Um, and I don't mean to take this in a very hyper-political direction, but uh, that's kind of that's kind of what what the book is about. It's 7.58 on a Thursday. I mean, politics are well. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let me um, give a uh, give uh, the last question to Liz Poca, who asks, um, I was wondering if you could talk a bit more about the geographic scope of your project, how it evolved and how you are thinking about Atlantic and Pacific worlds together. Great question. Mm-hmm. You know, as a dissertation, it really it really was very much an Atlantic world project. Um, and then, you know, I was like, well, you know, I. I I, I want to talk about silk. So, you know, even in the dissertation, I had a chapter about early, you know, um, silk promotion in Virginia. Um, but then, you know, I was like, well, I need to think about New Spain. And so it really, I started moving hemispherically. Mm. That. And then I realized that once I was, you know, thinking about um, Spanish empire, I needed to move across Pacific ocean systems. Um, and, you know, I had a chapter already on, um, the uh, Woolworker riots um, in early 18th century England. Um, so that put me moving across the Indo-Atlantic system to think about the British East India Company. Leslie Cohen uh, just published a book uh, about this, um, about, you know, and, and, and other people have actually, um, Ashley Cohen, yeah, um, have established this idea that um, the British Empire was working, it, it, was, it wasn't working thinking about just North America and then thinking about India, right? It was thinking about a sort of entire um, imperial system, right? So taking that as, as its basis, um, you know, from the early 18th century forward, there, you know, it was already, already, always already an Indo-Atlantic system. And then once I started to kind of bring other actors into the mix, um, you know, thinking about... Uh, what was going on in New Spain? Um, it really also again brought me across the Pacific, um, Pacific Ocean from Atlantic Pacific as well. So I guess you know um, what I'm thinking about is I uh, I think I think that Atlantic studies um, really offered an important antidote to ideas that history the idea that histories or literatures um, are in any way connected to a particular nation state in a particular time. Um, but sometimes I think that the Atlantic world system really uh it obfuscates the ways that um you know 18th century uh people are already thinking on a global scale and going to these places um which is why you know i wanted to think about what a global atlantic world would would be and how you would do a study that would bring all of those actors into into the mix well, it sounds like a wonderful study in the book. <laughs> and I'm, I'm delighted that it actually has images uh, because a lot of academic books don't include many of those. So all the more reason for folks to pick it up with that promo code we circulated. Um, thank you so much, Danielle. This was wonderful. Thank you, Will. Um, and thanks, uh, Library Company folk, for uh, hosting me tonight. Um, I hope to, to, to be back and uh, to, to, to see you in person at, at some point in the future. <laughs> yes, let's let's hope in the not too distant future. I'd love to talk to you about our um, what are they paper mach- the uh, the uh, paper mache bindings that we have in our collection, which seem like they'd be something you've already thought about. I'm sure. 
I don't think so. Um, so yeah, I mean, last time I was there, I was looking at, I think Connie brought out all the fortune telling books and like the folding cootie catcher, which, you know, next time you're in, you really need to go. Connie knows all the treasures. You yeah. Need to, you need to read everyone's fortunes. Um, it's really fun. <laughs> right. Have a great night, everybody. See you next week. Bye.